0: The following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Now, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome, writes in verse 17 of Romans 8, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The idea is glorified together with him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you tonight for this opportunity to open up your word and and to dig into realities that you've revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures concerning our relationship to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you'd help us to see them, to understand them, to be comforted by them, to be strengthened by them in our walk with him and with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, it's almost become an article of faith, I think, in American Christianity or large portions of American-professed Christianity, that God is committed to delivering his people from all suffering in this life. Uh, We see it, for example, in perhaps its most extreme form in the popularity of uh, what's sometimes referred to as the health-wealth gospel, which we see uh, so prevalent on uh, the television, Christian television stations and so forth. And the idea is it's God's purpose for you to be healthy and wealthy, and free from suffering. I also think about the the American attraction uh, to pre-trib rapture uh, theology. Of course, God would never let his people go through a time of great tribulation. He's going to remove us from the earth before he allows such a thing to happen. Well, regardless of your eschatology, I hope we all understand that freedom from suffering in this life is not promised in the gospel. Indeed, the New Testament writers teach us that suffering of various kinds, particularly suffering with Christ, is an inevitable part of Christian experience. You notice I said suffering with Christ. I didn't say suffering for Christ. Though I could have said that, and I would mean much the same thing, but there's more to it than that. The Bible speaks of the believer suffering with Christ. For example, here in our opening text, Paul speaks of suffering with Christ that we might also be glorified together with him. In Philippians 3.10, Paul tells us, in fact, that it was his aspiration, speaking of Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It's an interesting expression the fellowship of his sufferings, communion with Christ, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. Now, what does that mean? Well, I raised this question, I mentioned this as we return once again this evening to this short series I began a few weeks ago on the subject of union with Christ, and I felt that I really hadn't covered it adequately without addressing how union with Christ relates to Christian suffering. But before we begin to look at this, uh, let me just remind you very briefly of what we've learned thus far. In my first message, I sought to briefly introduce us to this subject of union with Christ, and we consider, first of all, the New Testament witness to union with Christ. We then consider the all-encompassing scope of union with Christ and its various phases or dimensions, extending from uh, the plan of salvation from the beginning all the way to the end. There are basically three phases or dimensions. There's what can be called predestinarian or electing union with Christ, God's eternal purpose to save his elect through Jesus Christ and the federal union or covenant union established in eternity between Christ and those he came to save. There's also what is sometimes called redemptive historical union with Christ, which is simply a way of uh, referring to that this federal union with Christ purposed in eternity as it carries into time and history when our Lord lived and actually lived on earth and died for his people and rose again. But then last time, our main focus was on what can be called experiential union with Christ. And that's normally what we think of when we speak of uh, the believer's union with Christ. We don't become actual partakers of Christ and the salvation accomplished by him For us, in our own life experience, until by the Spirit and by the gospel, we are effectually called to him and receive him by faith. Or in the language of the shorter catechism, in answer to the question, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The answer, by working faith in us, thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. You see, it's when we are joined to Christ... By the Spirit, by faith, when we are effectually called to Christ in our conversion, it's then that the blessings of salvation God purposed for us in eternity, that Christ secured for us by his redemptive work, actually become ours. It's then that we come to possess the blessings of salvation, which include, for example, forgiveness of our sins, justification, adoption, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and sanctification begun. And it's also in union with Christ that we continue to live a life of progressive sanctification until we are with Christ in glory, and then our very bodies are glorified with Christ on the last day. All of these blessings of salvation come to us and are absolutely secure to us because we are one with Christ, because of our union with Jesus Christ. But there's something else about our union with Christ that I want us to see this evening. Union with Christ also involves communion with Christ or fellowship with Christ in the very pattern of his life. In other words, our lives will follow the same pattern as his life did, which is suffering followed by glory. Quoting from Burkoff, commenting on this, union with Christ includes the fact that, quote, they, believers share in a measure in the experiences of their Lord. We share, in at least some measure, in the experience of our Lord, not only objectively and in our legal status before God, but also subjectively in our own personal lives, which means that the salvation Christ has given to us will work itself out in us along the same pattern of his life. Now, there are a number of texts we can look at, but the text I've had us turn to this evening is Roman, in Romans 8. It's a good one in which we see this, and we'll start here with this text. In the time remaining, I want to open it up and to try to draw out some of the lessons that are here for us, and our focus will be on verse 17. Let me read it to you again. And if children, or the idea is, since you are children, he's been setting forth this reality that he, we who believe on Christ are the children of God. That's what he's been saying leading up to this. We've been adopted by grace into the family of God. And now he says, since you are children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Now, I'll be seeking to open this up under two major divisions of thought. First, in this text, we see the wonderful privilege that is ours as children of God in union with Christ. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And then secondly, we have the pathway by which, in union with Christ, we will come to experience this wonderful privilege, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together with him. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at what Paul says concerning the wonderful privilege that is ours as the children of God in union with Christ. Verse 17a, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Now let me break this down phrase by phrase. So notice, first of all, Paul tells us that the children of God are heirs. Now the word heirs points to the fact that as God's children, there is a great inheritance that belongs to us and that awaits every Christian. And in fact, this is one of the great major themes of the Bible, going all the way back to Abraham. It's, in fact, if you were to take out your concordance and you look at how often the word heir, heirs, inheritance, inherent are found in Scripture, you may be shocked when you see how often it's there. This concept is a, this concept's very prevalent both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In fact, I would argue that this is the great promise and the great hope of the gospel and the greatest of all privileges for the Christian. The Christian is a child of God and because he's a child of God, he is an heir and he has an inheritance laid up for him. Now, this word heir underscores that this is not something the Christian himself has purchased. It's not by any work of our own that we acquire this inheritance. No, it is indeed an inheritance. It's yours if you're a Christian because you are a child of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Being a child of God, you're an heir. Now, we all know that in common life, an inheritance is not something you buy, it's not something you earn. It's something that is given to you. It's handed down to you because of your relationship to the one from whom you receive the inheritance. Generally speaking, children are the heirs of their parents' estate or possessions. They don't purchase those possessions. They don't earn them by something they do. They are heirs simply because they are the children of their parents. Well, the apostle has been emphasizing in the preceding verses that believers are the children of God. Therefore, they are heirs to a glorious inheritance. Well, let's press on further. And if children, then heirs, and then the apostle expands on that. He says, secondly, that we are heirs of God, heirs of God. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, at the very least, Paul is telling us that the child of God is an heir of the full inheritance that God himself has laid up for us. He refers to this in verse 18 as the glory which shall be revealed in us. And as he goes on to explain in this chapter, he's speaking in this context of the glory of the consummation, the redemption of our bodies at the resurrection, When our spirits made perfect we'll be joined to glorified bodies and we will enter the new heavens and the new earth fully and completely delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He speaks of this in verses 21 to 23. But now I want us to think about this a bit more, a little more detail. This glory, this inheritance, the glory of the eternal state for the Christian, what will it consist of? Well, I'll just mention some things. Obviously, we could preach a series of sermons on that, right? First of all, it will be a glory of greatly enlarged knowledge of and unbroken communion with God. John 17, 3 tells us that the essence of eternal life is to know God. And Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, this life and this knowledge becomes ours to a degree and in part the moment we are born of the Spirit and we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then we come to know God, but it's only in a very small measure. Still, at best, it's only partial and minimal when compared to the knowledge which will be ours in the world to come. It was Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I am also So you see, brothers and sisters, when Paul speaks of believers as heirs of God, there's a sense in which contained in that thought is the reality that above all else, God himself is the inheritance of his children. As God said to Abraham, our spiritual father, I am your exceedingly great reward. Now I have a book in my study, it's it's written by John Piper, I've had it for a long time and never read it. But I like the title. The title of it is God is the Gospel. And I did read a little blurb in Cumberland Valley catalog about it. So I know this much about it. The catalog said, Piper expounds on the greatest gift God has given us, the ability at his own great cost to be able to enjoy and love the fellowship of God forever. Now, I don't always agree with everything Piper says. In fact, I disagree with him pretty strongly, with especially this latest book he's come out with, but I won't talk about that too much right now. But I, did, I agree with him on this point for sure. The greatest gift God has given us is the ability at his own great cost to be able to enjoy and love the fellowship of God forever. He, at, at, at his great cost, the cost of giving up his son to the cross the ability to enjoy and to love him and to be loved by him and to have fellowship with him forever. And we know something of that now, but in the world to come, we will know an unfettered and unhindered communion with God of which our enjoyment of him now is just a very small foretaste. But this glory, which is the inheritance of God's children, is not only a glory of greatly enlarged knowledge of and unbroken communion with God himself, it's also a glory of perfect holiness, As the essence of eternal life is knowing God, so also the goal of eternal life is the restoration of the image of God in men through Christ. This restoration is begun when we are born again, but at best in this life, again, it's very incomplete. As our knowledge is incomplete, so is our holiness in conformity to the image of Christ. The reigning dominion of sin over us has been broken, its power has been weakened, positive graces have been and are being worked in us by the Holy Spirit, but the vexing, grieving presence of sin within us has by no means been eradicated. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary to one another, so that you cannot do the things that you wish, Galatians 5.17. The child of God wishes to be perfectly holy and like his Savior. But there's this old ball and chain of remaining sin and corruption that clings to us all the time, and it keeps weighing us down and holding us back, and that battle is constant and continuous, and it can be very wearisome. But we have an inheritance that awaits us, an inheritance of perfect holiness. No more of the pain of a convicted conscience, no more of Uh, the sorrow of repentance, no more of the blush of shame in approaching God's presence, no more of the dullness of soul and indisposition of heart that so hinders us at times in worship and in the pathway of duty. No more struggling with remaining unbelief that fills us at times with a kind of gloominess and deadness of soul. We see in the gospel how how that God can be just and yet justify the believer in Jesus Christ. We see that. We understand that. We believe it. But our faith is often so weak. The consciousness of daily weaknesses, the bitterness of grief for our sins vexes our hearts. But then we will see our Savior's face without a cloud between. Our souls will be possessed with a constant abiding felt and full assurance. Of his smile and perfect love for God and perfect love for one another will fill our hearts. Edwards has a sermon entitled Heaven, a World of Love. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Perfect love for Christ, for one another, heaven will be a world where there's nothing but unhindered love. What a wonderful thought that is. Thirdly, it will be an inheritance of perfect happiness. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying, perfect joy and happiness and satisfaction of every God-created faculty of our being. We're not, in the final state, we'll not just be spirits floating around on clouds, but we'll have glorified bodies joined to our our, uh, glorified spirits, and there'll be perfect joy and happiness, satisfaction of every faculty, perfect, sinless, satisfying, wholesome pleasures, aesthetically, visually, Mentally, spiritually, and even physically. And then it's also an inheritance that includes the possession of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus, speaking of believers, says in Matthew 5, 5, And they shall inherit the earth. The entire earth is our inheritance. The day is coming when this earth, we speak of the new earth, but remember it's the new what? Earth, is still the earth, the day is coming when this earth, renewed and renovated and freed from the curse, will belong to the children of God. Indeed, we read in the 21st chapter of the Revelation in verse 7, that he who overcomes shall inherit all things, all things. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians three, twenty-one and 22. Speaking of believers, he says, all things are yours. Now, when we think of men like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, I mean, he put out how many billions of dollars to purchase Twitter? You think, how can anybody have that much money? I mean, these these guys are rich, indeed, but none of these men. Indeed, the richest man in the world cannot say that the entire earth belongs to him. Much less can he say that all things are his. But listen to me, child of God. We who are Christians, even the very poorest of God's children, we can say that. Everybody else who's living on this earth, who doesn't belong to Christ, who's not serving Christ, is not believing in Christ, they're trespassing on God's earth. And one day the wicked will be cut off from the earth. And God's children will inherit the earth. This is the inheritance laid up for us in Christ next time uh I think I've said this to you before next time you go down to the beach and you look out and you see the I like to go the sunset maybe you like to go for the sunrise but whichever it is next time you're there and you're looking at all of that beauty you think to yourself well this all belongs to my father it all ultimately belongs to Jesus Christ and one day it will belong to me to God's people Next time you go to the mountains and maybe you're up on the Blue Ridge Parkway and and it's fall and the colors are beautiful and you're just looking out and you're overwhelmed with the beauty of it all, remind yourself, this earth belongs to Jesus Christ and it belongs to his people. One day it will belong to us and to me. It's all part of our inheritance. In Romans 4.13, we find that the promise to Abraham, you know, the promise of that inheritance in the land Well, Paul tells us what that promise is really a a forerunner of, what it was pointing to. We find that the promise of Abraham made over to his spiritual seed, Romans 4.13, is that he would be the heir of what? What does he say? Of the world. Not just the land of Canaan, but the entire world is our inheritance. Well, we could go on and on with this. Thirdly, we... So we'll just move on. We could go on talking about these things, but we get an idea of what we're talking about here. Now, the apostle goes further. He says, we are heirs, heirs of God. But then thirdly, he says, we are joint heirs with Christ. Now, why did the apostle go to the trouble to add this in? Well, he wants us, I believe he wants us to understand why and how these blessings have become ours And he's concerned that we understand the security of this inheritance. It is absolutely secure to us, and it has become ours because we are in Christ. You see, it's all because we are joint heirs with Christ that we are even heirs at all. Hebrews 1-2 reminds us that God has appointed his son heir of all things. He is the heir. The Apostle Paul expresses this in the epistle to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. The promises are made first and foremost to Christ and then to us in Christ because of our union with Christ. As Paul goes on to say in verse 29 of Galatians 3, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, the children of God, we simply enter in with Christ into the possession of that inheritance that belongs to him as the God-man, as the reward of his obedience unto death. And it's important, we all understand that we only become heirs by being incorporated into Christ. We are children of God through him, by faith in him, and we become heirs because we are joined to him. And Paul has just explained this concept in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. We who are Christians are no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. We were in Adam, and we were dealt with in Adam. And because of the one man's sin, we were accounted sinners, and we inherited the awful consequences of his sin. But now we are in Christ. Christ. And we are now inheriting the consequences of the action of the last Adam, the second representative man, the Lord Jesus. Christ perfectly obeyed the law of God, and he was faithful to the commission given to him by the Father. He fulfilled every precept of the law and he endured and fully exhausted the punishment of the law for our sins upon the cross in our place. And in fulfillment of the Father's promise to the Son, he has ascended into heaven and he has highly exalted him in his human nature, now permanently joined to his divine nature and has given him a name which is above every name. But this man... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, having finished the work for our salvation once and for all. And if we are one of those who has trusted in him, we are united to him, and we are considered as one with him. And because we are joined to him, all of these blessings that he has earned and that he has secured become ours. Every spiritual blessing comes to us because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. We are heirs because we are joint heirs with him. Well, so much for the wonderful privilege, the wonderful inheritance that is ours as God's children because of our union with Christ. But now I want to focus on what Paul says in the next half of this verse where we have, secondly, the pathway by which in union with Christ... And in communion with Christ, fellowship with Christ, the pathway by which we come to experience and to receive this wonderful privilege. Verse 17, if indeed, of 17b, we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now here's the doctrine of this text or the teaching here that I want us to see. As I briefly mentioned in the introduction, Paul is telling us that the pattern of Christ's life and experience will in some measure be the same pattern in the life and experience of the believer. Now, notice again how Paul states it. He said, we are joint heirs with Christ. He's reminded us of our union with Christ by which we are the heirs of God. Now he tells us that our union with Christ not only applies to the reception of the inheritance, and the glory to come, it also applies to his sufferings. He says, we are joint heirs together with Christ, if so be, or if indeed, or perhaps it could be translated, since indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, or that we may be glorified with him as well. Our union with Christ not only applies to the reception of the inheritance, but also to his sufferings. Now, we need to be careful here. The sufferings of Christ can be uh, regarded from two perspectives. On the one hand, of course, he suffered the divine wrath that was against us for our sins as our substitute upon the cross. And he, in doing that, finished the work. He, he exhausted the punishment that was due to us upon the cross. We don't share in that. Our sufferings are not salvific. They're not mediatorial. The work uh, that Christ did for our salvation has been accomplished once and for all. But on the other hand, his sufferings are also to be viewed as the pathway conducting him to glory. And it's in that sense that the experience of Christ is set forth as the pattern of the experience of his people. The pattern of his redemptive work is the pattern in the life and experience of the children of God. And what was the pattern of Christ's redemptive work for his people? It was a pattern of suffering followed by glory. Listen to our Lord's own words. In Luke 24, as he spoke to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they were discouraged because they had misunderstood the pattern of Messiah's work for his people. The Lord Jesus said to them, "'O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe "'all that the prophets have spoken.'" Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He says you're slow of heart to believe what is set forth in the prophets concerning Christ. There is a pattern to Messiah's work. And that pattern is sufferings first and then enter into his glory. The Apostle Peter picks up this same theme in 1 Peter one eleven, when he tells us that the prophets testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. There again, we see the same pattern. Sufferings first, and then the glory that would follow. You remember what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 6, and 9? He spoke of this same pattern. He said, Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. So there again, we see the same pattern. And now here in our text... Paul is telling us that in union with Christ, this is the same pattern of God's work in us in our life and experience. This is the pattern as he is conforming us to the image of his Son, and preparing us for the glory that awaits us. It's the exact same pattern, suffering followed by glory. Though we are accepted by God solely on the ground of the finished work of Christ, so that none of our sufferings have any redemptive value whatsoever, nevertheless, it is true that everyone who is a Christian and is an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ is brought into such a union with Jesus Christ that as certainly as our full redemption was provided for us by means of our Lord's suffering and the glory that followed, so also it will work its way out in us, in our lives, to some degree along the same pattern and along the same pathway. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together with Him. We see this principle in many places in the New Testament. For example, you remember as the apostles went about to encourage the churches that they had recently planted on their first missionary journey. Paul comes back, Acts 22, and they went among the churches, and it says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. You see the pattern? Tribulation followed by glory. 1 Peter four twelve to 13, beloved, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent, listen, that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. There it is. You partake of Christ's sufferings as the pathway to partaking of his glory. So this is the principle that Paul underscores here in the second half of Romans 8, 17. The pattern of Christ's life and experience will be the pattern in the life and experience of the child of God. This is the pathway in union and communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ by which we arrive at the glory to come. Now, let me draw your attention to the language here. Paul speaks here of suffering with Christ. Now, what does it mean to suffer with Christ? Christ. Now we know that everyone who lives in this sin-cursed world experience suffering in some degree and distress and afflictions and disappointments in one form or another, but not everyone does so with Christ. Only Christians suffer with Christ. You see, this is speaking of sufferings that are connected to our relationship to him or that are experienced in the context of us seeking to live a life of devotion to him. But now, this suffering with Christ, this sharing with Christ and his sufferings, it can be experienced by the Christian in different ways. Let me mention some of them. There's the emotional pain of being rejected or ridiculed because of your devotion to Jesus Christ. Being left out, not fitting in at work or at school, being ostracized, disrespected or misunderstood even by loved ones and family members. There's financial suffering things like being forced to take a lower-paying job so you don't have to work on the Lord's Day, or not being promoted or losing your job because of your Christian testimony. There's also physical suffering. Some Christians experience bodily harm or imprisonment. Some have even paid the ultimate price of a martyr's death. That doesn't happen to every Christian. It doesn't happen to most Christians, but it has and it does to some. Then we can also include what Someone has called, I think very helpfully, voluntary sufferings. Now, I don't mean by that deliberately harming yourself. But what's being referred to are the sufferings or the discomforts or loneliness or lack that we experience because of voluntary life choices that a Christian makes as we seek first the kingdom of God. Perhaps choosing to leave the comforts of home and family and familiar surroundings For the gospel's sake, in order to serve God in some place or in some way where there's a need to which God has called you. Isn't that, uh, though in a much more profound way, the very thing that Jesus did? He left the glories of his home in heaven. And he was willing to deny himself by becoming a man and living on this sin-cursed earth in order to save us. You see, making the glory of Christ and the advancement of his kingdom your chief priority in life. Denying yourself to serve other people. And to serve Jesus Christ in various ways. And the sacrifices that that involves. Financial sacrifices, perhaps sacrifices of time and and effort and comfort and convenience. All of that is following in the footsteps of Christ and suffering with him. Even our daily struggle with sin. We read in Scripture that Jesus suffered being tempted. We read about his conflict with the devil in the wilderness for 40 days. Indeed, his whole life was a struggle against sin and temptation. Now, thank God he never lost a battle. And he was spotlessly holy and sinless. We aren't, but we're still engaged as Christians in the same conflict. The conflict of struggling with sin, fighting against his attempts to reestablish its, its rule over us and to bring us back under its power. It can sometimes be very wearisome and a painful conflict, and it never is, but we keep fighting because of our love and devotion our Savior. That's part of what it means to suffer with Christ. Indeed, there's a sense in which all of our trials as Christians are included in this. For why are they called trials for Christians? Because they try our faith. They are also temptations to cast off our faith and to give up and to throw in the towel. Jesus experienced the same temptations. But as we continue holding to him, even in the darkest valleys, not caving into unbelief, we are sharing with him in his sufferings. Indeed, for the Christian, all of the sufferings and trials and difficult circumstances that we experience are a part of what God is using to conform us to the image of his Son. God has ordained them as part of the means by which he is shaping us and maturing us and making us like his son and preparing us for glory. And again, there's a sense in which the same was true of Jesus. In Hebrews 2.10 we read, For it was fitting for him for whom, all are, for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Christ was made perfect through sufferings. Now, the idea there is not that he was ever anything less than morally perfect. No, he never sinned. He was without sin in every stage of his life on earth as a man. But it was through suffering that he was made perfect and complete in the sense of being perfectly equipped and qualified to be our Savior and the sympathizing high priest of his people. Hebrews 5.8 says that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Not that our Lord was ever disobedient, no, but the demands that obedience placed upon him increased throughout his life, requiring greater resources of love and devotion to his Father every step of the way, culminating in that greatest and that most difficult act of obedience when he gave himself up to the suffering and death of the cross And in that sense, our Lord learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And if that was necessary, that was the necessary pathway for him to learn obedience. How much more is that true of us? All of our sufferings and trials as God's people, you see, have this purpose. They're being used by God to shape us, to sanctify us, to equip us, to conform us to the image of his son, to prepare us for the glory to come. And in that sense... All of our sufferings as God's people. In all of them, we are suffering with Christ. We're we're having fellowship with Christ. In communion, a communion of common experience. Communion with our Savior in his sufferings. Now think about this. What a new light that that this sheds upon our trials, brothers and sisters. What comfort this gives. Christ is not distant from us. In our heartaches, He's not aloof from us in our trials and our sufferings. He is with us and we are in Him. We are sharing with Him in His sufferings as He also shares with us in our sufferings. Do you remember how Paul learned this lesson? I think this is where Paul first learned to begin to grasp the whole doctrine of union with Christ. It was at his conversion. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, when you persecute me, when you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. There is a communion, a fellowship, a sharing with him in his sufferings as he also shares with us in our sufferings. Indeed, sometimes it's in the darkest hours that the Christian experiences by the Spirit the sweetest fellowship with Jesus Christ. And we know that we have a sympathizing Savior who is tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin and to whom we can draw near to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, knowing that he sympathizes with us because he too suffered and we suffer with him. That we might also be glorified together. Well, as I bring this message to some focus words of application before we go, I wonder if there's anyone here this evening who's being tempted to doubt God's love Perhaps to doubt if you're truly a Christian because of uh, present pain or distresses in your life. Well, no, my dear friend, this is what happens to all who are the heirs of God and belong to Christ. Suffering as a result of our commitment to Christ. Doesn't mean we're all going to be martyrs, okay? But suffering, the ways that I've described, suffering as a result of our commitment to Christ, simply the trials and afflictions of this life in general that we meet up with as we are trying to be faithful to Him, trying to live for Him. As someone has put it this way, even the mundane frustrations and unspectacular difficulties of our everyday lives when they are endured for Jesus' sake. These things should never cause you to think that God doesn't love you or that you must not truly be a Christian. On the contrary, this is the school in which we are being prepared for the full possession of our glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. Christ suffered, and as God is working in our lives to conform us to Christ, to prepare us for glory, all of his children to some degree and in various ways will suffer also. Or maybe I'm talking to someone who has professed Christ, but you're being tempted to have hard thoughts about God. You're being tempted to throw in the towel, to quit, go back to the world because of these things that have come upon you. It may be pressures that have come to bear upon you directly because of your identification with Christ, or it may be that in the providence of God, you are simply experiencing some very, very difficult and trying circumstances. And you're beginning to wonder... If this whole Christianity thing is just kind of a it's just a bunch of bunk. It's just a pack of lies. No, my friend, as Peter said, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is trying you, as though some strange thing is happening to you, our text reminds you that this is the pathway by which we are conducted to glory as God's children. And there's no other pathway. There is no other pathway. We don't get an out here, right? It reminds us in God's plan, there's no gain without pain. There's no crown without the cross. Now, this teaching has a lot to say about our evangelism, doesn't it? You know, there's a kind of false evangelism around today. This message goes something like this Are you in trouble, my friend? Are you lonely? Are you depressed? Is your life hard and difficult? Well, join up with us. Come to Christ and everything will be well. No more troubles. All your problems will disappear. Dare I say, there's even some Christian movies that promote this message. Well, that's not really what the gospel message tells us. The gospel promises point first and primarily to the future while at the same time being very honest with us about the present. They tell us that in coming to Christ we will know the joy of sins forgiven, peace with God, the peace of God in our hearts, the comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit, and there's also the blessings that come with obedience to God, indeed. Many other spiritual blessings, yes. But it also tells us that the best is yet to come. And in the meantime... In this life, we must expect tribulation. In this world, Jesus said, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Tribulation now, yes, but there's glory to follow. There's the inheritance that awaits us as the heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. When the devil or any person tries to tell you that the gospel is just a pack of lies because of of the struggles and the trials. And sometimes we can be tempted to think this way, even because we see even some of our brothers and sisters who suffer in terrible ways, not just ourselves. And we, we, we can doubt, we can begin to wonder. But my dear friend, you just say, wait a minute. When were we ever promised by the gospel that we would have no troubles? The gospel never promises that. But it does promise that in this world, we will have tribulation. It does say, if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified together with him. It does tell us that Christ has overcome the world. As Paul says, a very similar thing in 1 Timothy. If we suffer with him, he says, we shall also live with him. If we endure, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. And it tells us in verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. When we step into that glory of our inheritance, all the sufferings of this life will be as nothing. They'll be forgotten. They're not even worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. Remember the inheritance. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on the glory to come. That's what we're living for. Troubles of this life are just for a moment. Our glorious inheritance in the world to come will be eternal. As the hymn says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for this portion of your word and for this teaching, Lord, that gives gives meaning in a special way to the sufferings and trials of your people. We thank you that we have a Savior who has suffered for us and who sympathizes with us. And Lord, that we can know that as we suffer the trials and the annoyances and the difficulties and the pains of life in this world, seeking to be true to you in the midst of all the temptations and all of the trials and all of the pressures, We thank you that we have this knowledge that we are suffering with Christ, that indeed we might be glorified together with him. Thank you, our Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.